The Jewish Frame, Episode 3, Homicide. Okay, so introduce the show. I'll introduce the show. That's how. That's what usually happens first in these podcasts. Sometimes, that's sometimes right. it happens Maybe. first. This is the Jewish Frame, a Jewish podcast about movies and a movie podcast about Jewishness. I am Ben Chin, and with me is Rabbi Dan Ain. All right. So this time we're talking about homicide. This is one of your choices. This is. Have you seen this? Had you seen this before I had I not. No, I, I mean, I wasn't a mammoth I had seen. Why? How did you choose it? Uh, I don't know why it came to me. I like David Mamet. Maybe I had come across it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why I thought of it. Well, last time... I never time, even heard of it. You never heard of it? Last time, we said we wanted a drama. And we got it. And we definitely got it. <laughs> There is some of this is funny. There are some funny parts, I think. Oh, I look forward to sharing which ones those oh, are. Oh, there's some funny, yeah. Uh, there's some there's some funny bits. But yeah, it's definitely, it's not a comedy. The word I used when I texted you after I saw it was bleak. It's a bleak movie. I don't know there's, if I it's, it's, uh, it's It's a portrait of a lost man. Yes, that's definitely true. Well, so let's talk about Mammoth. I want to get into Mammoth a little bit. Take it away. Okay, so just by way of introduction, David Mammoth, American playwright, director, screenwriter, author, hails from Chicago, started out there, was active there in the early 70s, and then hit the scene big in 75 when... Three of his plays were being produced off-Broadway. I think all at the same time. Maybe by the same company. Duck Variations, Sexual Perversity in Chicago, and American Buffalo. And I think they were just a sensation. And then everybody was like, oh, this guy is something special and interesting and different. And that was... That's, that was 75, so he writes more plays. Then he gets the call from Hollywood, I guess, and starts writing screenplays, the first of which was The Postman Always Rings Twice, the remake with Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lange, I believe. And then he does The Verdict, the Paul Newman Oh, that's him. Picture, yeah. That's his screenplay. It's a Boston College Law School alum he plays in that movie. I know that movie. Sure. That's right. Another bleak movie. But it's Paul Newman. It's fun. That movie's fun. It's not, it's a drama. It's not a comedy, but it's, he's got a, it's Paul Newman. He's a big movie star. It's a Hollywood underdog type story. Legal thing. Legal totally. drama. Totally. Um, so he, he has written some screenplays, and then in 87, he makes his first movie as a director, which is House of Games. You seen that one? No. It's not Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. That's got to be his He didn't direct that one. He didn't direct that. No, no. That. It's his, he only, I think, directed his own adaptation once. He did direct an adaptation of Oleana. Um, I think that was actually his next movie after Homicide. He did that, but 
Um, other other of his plays have been adapted for the screen, notably Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, but he did not. Somebody else directed that. So House of Games is his first movie, which Roger Ebert said was his film of the year. So it got some notice. Starring Lindsay Cruz, to whom he was married, I think at the time, wife, wife number one. She, did she star as well? Yeah, she starred in that movie. She, she was the star of that movie. And then he did Things Change, which nobody has seen except for me, and it's one of my favorite movies. It's in my top 20, I think, honestly. Shush. Yeah. It's a beautiful movie. He wrote it, I think maybe the only time he's taken co-writing credit. So it's written by David Mamet and Shel Silverstein, which is an odd combination. To say the least. But it really works. Because What's it called? It, it's called Things Change. Stars Donna Michi and Joe Mantegna and all of Mamet's crew. So how's the games, Things Change, and then he does this movie, Homicide. It's all the same people. It's Oh, he always used this. Yeah. It's Joe Mantegna. It's... William H. Macy. That guy who plays with cards and throws them around. It's Ricky Jay. Ricky Jay. That's he loves putting in his movies. Always. And Rebecca these, Pigeon. Rebecca Pigeon. She's not in the first two. Okay. She doesn't show up until this one. I don't know if they were married at the time, but then they get married. Maybe they are by this time. Uh, but it's all like, it's all these guys who, and it's funny because this movie's kind of set in like nowheresville right you don't never really homicide you never really find out where it's supposed to be but these guys all clearly sound like they're from chicago it's pretty funny it's all these chicago guys that he's worked with for years and years and years and years and they show up in these first three movies and this first these first three movies to me are like a triptych it's all the same people and they all i mean we can talk about homicide now i feel like these first Three movies of his, and Homicide included, have this dreamlike quality to them. They feel not quite real. Did you get that sense? No, I did not get that sense. Huh. Interesting. What, what, well, let's talk about Homicide, because that's the one I've seen. What, what gives you the dreamlike sensibility in Homicide? Well, first is the language. It's this, it doesn't sound like anything else. Well, that's Mamet. Exactly. But to, it puts me in this sort of altered state that, that the language is so peculiar. I don't want to say peculiar because it doesn't sound like oh, weird, but it doesn't sound, it sounds like its own thing. It's like Shakespeare, right? You, you hear it and you're somewhere else. So there's the language, there's even the visuals. Oh. And this movie, he's got Roger Deakins as the cinematographer. He now, well, not just now, I think even maybe back then, he does all the Coen Brothers stuff. He's the Coen Brothers cinematographer. And their movies look... Not a ton of cinematography in this film. Amazing. I think it looks pretty good. Well, he doesn't have the budget that the Coens have been playing around with lately. I don't know... This movie could not have cost more than a few. No, million it looks like the set you could have been taken from a '70s cop movie. Is pretty much my take on it. I think it looks a little bit better than like a cop show. I didn't say show. Oh, I like thought a movie. Barney Miller, but you know, it could have been taken out of any sort of 
police and of a Dirty Harry movie. It has a set like a Dirty Harry movie. I would say not as much production value. No, no, no. Nowhere no, near no, as no, much. No, 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 no. Certainly, definitely lower budget. It's a nice looking art film. It's fine. It's a nice looking sort of cheap. It's fine. Okay. You might have liked this movie more than me, so this could be fun. Okay. So he's got a real cinematographer here. Okay. And so why do I say yeah, it's Yeah, what's dreamlike? with the dreamlike? Well, he actually talks about this. I watched it on the Criterion channel. It's got all the commentary, and I actually watched. You cheated. I cheated a little bit. He does commentary with William H. Macy, and he talks about how every time he makes a movie, he rereads Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces. He, he says that he believes that cinema, it's mythic. And I think you get that here. Um, so interesting. I read it like a little small story of a little man who doesn't know who the hell he is. That's, that's what I saw. This a little tiny story of a little lost man who just has no, you know, I was thinking about it. Can you Google something for me? Let's Google something. Okay, okay. Let's Google, look, look this up again. for me. Um, look at the word based. So this is a new word. Have you heard this? It's in based? This, like, based, B-A-S-E-D. Look it up. B-A-S-E-D. It's in the zeitgeist. It's one of the new words this year. Okay. What does it mean? Urban well, dictionary. Urban dictionary yeah. you want. Okay. The word you use when you agree with something or when you want to recognize someone for being themselves, i.e. courageous and unique or not caring about what others think, especially common in online political slang. That's right. So people who are based are like, they have their opinion, they know who they are, they don't care what anybody else is. That's based, Not right? this guy. No, he's the opposite he's of the based. He's the opposite. Completely. Completely. Uh, and it's frustrating to watch as a viewer. Frustrating? Yeah, it's annoying. Because my own sort of, he, it's a, it, I obviously he, let's, first of all, let's go through, let's catch the listeners up. What's going on in the movie? Take us Set the okay. picture. Now, give us a way into the film so that we can begin analyzing the characters. This movie is great in this respect. I have the plot committed to memory because <laughs> it's intricate, but it's like a finely tuned clock. All the pieces fit together so well that they could not be in any other order. He plots really quite... Well, and you said, I, I think, uh, off air, as it were, this is a short movie. It's true. It's really short. It's really tight. And you couldn't remove oh, there are anything. Air yes, but there are areas like when he goes and bombs up the Nazi headquarters that seem like they came from out of nowhere. Like, I just, I don't know how he goes from, I won't take the piece of paper from the evidence to bombing the Nazi headquarters. Ah, okay. So That's rapid. That's a rapid shift that I, I felt was hard to process. Well, you know what I want to get to at some point? I want to, I want to add a new feature. I told, I, by the way, I told Ben before we started that my goal of this episode was to not follow any linear path. <laughs> and then you told me, well, let's go through the movie linearly. <laughs> so I want to add a new feature maybe later on to this podcast, which is movie midrash. Okay. A midrash is what, like a story. That, to fill in the gaps. To fill in the gaps. And I, so I would like to add a feature of movie midrash. I think with this film, there's a lot of movie midrash we could do to be like, well, where's, wouldn't it be great if there was a scene that told you this or whatever? Okay, so. Homicide. The movie opens on a SWAT team 
don't see any of their faces. They've all got masks on and they are invading an apartment somewhere. They burst in. They're looking for somebody. They don't find him. They're like, you look in the closet. They shoot out the closet. They open and the closet has a false back. He's, he's escaped out the back. He's off. He's on the fire escape, the roof. He's gone. Finger aims. Well, we don't know that yet, but we'll, we get there. He's so great. I've always loved Ving Rhames. I've, I bought Ving Rhames stock early. <laughs> Maybe even this early. This is 1991, by the way, this film. So then the next scene, you're at the police station, and a guy from the mayor's office is haranguing the cops. Patterson. Patterson, is that his name? Yeah. He's haranguing the cops, saying, uh, the FBI took on this thing. They've blown it. You had this before. You guys blew it. You need now to find this guy. The city's on fire. The black community is well. That's furious. Correct. Uh, this is a black this guy is a who's black delivering guy, this. A black uh, 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 black person has been murdered, and uh, um, the mayor and Patterson are really keen on going after uh, the murderer. Uh, and it's well, this guy fascinating killed somebody. He's killed a cop too. Patter oh, I missed that. Patterson says to Montaigne, and we'll talk about why Joe Montaigne is playing the Jewish character at some point. I still will figure that out later. Patterson says to Montaigne, as a white man, he calls him a white man when he's haranguing him about how the FBI messed this up and we need to do this because there's a black man who's been murdered and this has to be done because if it was a white guy who was killed, you'd all be all about it as a white man. And he calls Montaigne a white man. And then somebody comes up to him and tells him his name, which is Robert Gold. Bobby Gold. And then right after that, he shifts from being a white man to being Mr. Gold and the K-word, which Patterson throws at him. So he goes instantly from being white to being Jewish in the course of that conversation, which is fascinating, which was just I mean, for first scene for a cop, it's really interesting because they don't know where he fits either. Nobody in his uh, police department has any idea where he fits either. Is he white? He's white when it's convenient to yell at the white people. Is he Jewish? He's Jewish when it's convenient to yell at the Jewish people. Um, I thought that was particularly fascinating in the shift of the approach from the, uh, I guess, whoever it was, the mayor's person, Patterson. Right. And Patterson is like, who is this guy? Right. No idea. Unexplained. And the uh, officer in charge, whatever, says, oh, that's Bobby Gold. He's our hostage negotiator. So already he has this role that is different from everybody else. Oh, yeah. It comes up time and time again. That's right. But Macy, so he gets called the K-word by, uh, by Patterson. And Macy is just, just goes hot. William H. Macy. Yeah. Who's so great in this he movie. He just goes hot instantly to defend his partner. But not Bobby Gold. He's not defend himself. Oh. Bobby Gold. Sorry. I, I mixed it up because um, there is a character in the David Mamet play, Speed the Plow, whose name is Bobby Gould. Oh, that is So he likes this name, apparently. Yes. How come he doesn't like a Jewish actor playing a Jewish role? Okay. There is a story here. Great. I want to hear it. That David Mamet was at a screening doing a Q&A. 
and somebody in the audience said, why didn't you have a Jew in this role? Seems so obvious question. And David Mamet said, oh, casting by religion. That's interesting. (laughs) And that was the end of that conversation. (laughs) Well, I mean, talk about something that's in the zeitgeist. Can Can a straight person play gay? I mean, is that permitted these days? Could Ben Kingsley play Gandhi in 2021? In 2021, no. I don't no, think he, he get certainly couldn't. But this was 1991, first of all. And second of all, Joe Mantegna was his guy. This was like a Scorsese-De Niro-type relationship, I would, I think. And so... And I guess if Bobby De Niro can play the Irishman... That's right. <laughs> then Mantegna can play the Jewish guy. And I like Joe Mantegna in this role. I don't know. I like him. I mean, I like Joe Mantegna, too. I've always liked Joe Mantegna. And he does do Mamet better than maybe anybody except William H. Macy. He was, uh, incidentally, won a Tony for creating the role of Ricky Roma from Glengarry. Really? I didn't know that. Okay, so he goes from being a white man to being a Jew pretty quickly. And then we have this sidebar of this guy who they're holding. This is so interesting. I can't get my head around this. I love it. I love it. Who killed his wife and his three kids with four shots, by the way. With a deer rifle. Yeah. Uh, And then... (laughs) And I uh, love the exchange. The guy brings him in. Says, I killed his wife and and three kids with a a deer rifle. Oh, yeah. Four shots. Wife and three kids, four shots. Pretty good shooting, wouldn't you say? Why did you do that? I, when he says, I, I, you think I, you were hunting deer. He, did he, he, yes, I thought I was hunting deer. He said, why did you do that? He said, I wanted to protect them. Oh, well, they're safe now. Wouldn't you say these cops are just hilarious. Um, okay. Hilarious is one way to put it. Okay. So then the, as they're booking this murderer, he somehow gets loose and attacks gold and whaps him, I guess with his gun across the head with a bruise you see for the rest of the movie. So it was a very pronounced bruise on his forehead for the rest of the movie. And Montaigne, I mean, you could see Mamet in these lines. He says, what did I ever do to you? <laughs> and I stood up for you. I mean, holy cow, you can transpose that language into a lot of different settings with Jewish people. What did I ever do to you when I stood up for you? Um, and he says, he says, I'll make it up to you. The murderer says, I'll make it up to you. Perhaps someday I will tell you the nature of evil, to which Montaigne says, I'll pass because then I'd be out of work. Yeah. Right. So there is something here which is hinted at initially. Well, it's going to be hinted at even more so. Because I, I, they build him up a little bit, and then at the end they just cut him down. Like anything he thought he might be getting right, he's, getting, he's gotten wrong by the end of the movie. Yeah, he gets everything. Everything is wrong. Everything is wrong, which is ironic because everyone says, oh, you're so smart, you're a Jew, you're so smart. But he gets everything wrong the whole time. So there's this weird dissonance. Dissonance there. But the thing that I liked about his relationship with the murderer is he is able to connect to the outsider, which is a skill nobody else in that department possesses. And it comes up time and time again between him and his relationship with Macy. They call him, you're the linchpin. Macy says, we need the mouthpiece to sweet talk his ass. There is a silver tongue that 
we need the orator, Macy says. Yeah. There's a, he's able to communicate with criminals, with murderers, with the mother of Randolph, the mother of Ving Rhames. At least it looks like he's able to communicate. Who knows what that relationship is about? We can talk about that later. But he has an ability to communicate with the outsider that no one else in the department possesses. And they make that crystal clear at the top. And thought about it that way. I think it's a really good observation. I was, I just thought as over and over again about this guy, the Wells, I think is his name. The, oh, the murderer. The yeah. murderer. I just didn't see where he fit in. I have a crazy theory, which I'm going to get to later because I have a crazy theory about this movie. But the less crazy thought I had was that it shows that Bobby Gold will stand up for everybody except himself. Absolutely. He will stand up for a guy who kills his wife and three children before he will stand up for himself. And we've just come from the scene where this guy insults him. He is deferential to him and when he is insulted with a racial slur, he is standing there, doing nothing. dumbfounded, That's doing really... nothing, while his partner, uh, Tim Sullivan, played by William H. Macy, is is like, hold me back, I'm going to get Absolutely. this guy, you can't talk to my partner that way. Right, like a human being. Like like someone who has a little bit of chutzpah guts about him. Or who just... Some pride. Yeah. Right. Okay, so I want to stop you for a second, because... On my wall here, we're in the rabbi's office in Congregation Beth Shalom in San Francisco. On my wall here, as any rabbi would have, is a portrait or a, a artistic representation of the binding of Isaac. And one of the things people ask all the time with regard to Abraham trying to kill his own son, Abraham tells him to go take his own son. He says, well, Abraham stood up for all the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. He negotiated down to 10. He says not a word when God tells him to kill his son. And people often come up to me, Rabbi, I don't understand. He stood up for Sodom and Gomorrah, but he doesn't stay up, stand up for his own son. And I think Mamet is pushing that button right there. It is easier to stand up for other people than it's to stand up for yourself or for a child of yours. There is something about that that is harder for us to do as Jews. And um, that actually was a lesson Rabbi Heidi Hoover uh, in Brooklyn shared with me about her own relationship, knowing parents who will go out of their way to help strangers, but will totally overlook their own parents. And um, interesting perspective. I often think about that in terms of, you know, being a public figure. It's hard to stand up for your own children, you know, when you have that, when you have people looking at you. It's fascinating to me. Well, now you've gone, you've gone biblical. Always. I'll come back to something else that David Mammoth said, that he compared Bobby Gold to Moses in this way, in this way. You totally cheated for this episode. I did cheat, but I did. It's called research, rather. It's called research. <laughs> so he says, Moses, you have this thing where he's between worlds. He's not an Egyptian. That's right. And... He's not really a Hebrew. He's apart from the rest of his people. All the time, when he's supposed to be leading them, he doesn't really maybe understand them, 
they don't really trust him all through the 40 years, right? They're constantly um, making noises that he's not really one of us that sort of culminates in the, the rebellion, right? And so he's a guy that is stuck between these two worlds in some way. Now, of course, he manages it a lot better than the character in this movie, but that was David I mean, Montaigne is barely in the other world. He doesn't even, he's not even aware he's in the other world at first. In what other world? The Jewish world. He's not even aware that he's existing. Well, he in knows that he's world. a Jew. Barely. Almost. Well, he he Almost. knows he's, he doesn't know what it means. Well, you hear the, okay, so let's move ahead a little bit. Okay, so, um, so he gets whacked in the head and his holster is broken. Torn. Does that mean something? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to that later. Okay. But it is important in terms of the plot. It's crucial. And actually, it's a reverse Chekhov's gun, actually, is what happens. Explain this. Well, you know the uh, Chekhov's adage that if you see a gun it's gonna in used. scene one, that gun is going to be fired in the last act, right? This is a reverse Chekhov's gun. The holster is broken in act one, and that means that the gun cannot go off in act five so it's sort of a little i think it's mammoth being a little cheeky there but it's definitely important in terms well of ving rames uh mentions it at right, the end right. of the movie we'll so right, i'm i'm picking you up now okay. okay so he um so he gets whacked up the head the holster's broken and then the cops put together their plan for randolph which is this important case that everyone's working on to get this guy who was a drug dealer a murderer and a cop killer so it's a big deal so they're like, okay. Well, Joe Mantegna says, oh, we can just, it's going to be easy to get this guy. We know. He's got the whole plan. He's got the whole plan. We know where his brother-in-law hangs out and either he'll be hanging out there or we'll pick up the brother-in-law and the brother-in-law will tell us where he is. So they get in the car, him and his partner get in the car to go to the gym where the brother-in-law hangs out. And before they can get there, they have to swerve to a stop in front of a police car that is stopped in the middle of the road in front of this candy store in a black neighborhood. And there's a cop there who's freaking out. And Joe Mantegna gets out and he's like, what's going on? And he's like, my partner, he's in there. He's like pinned down. The dog. Right, whatever. And he's like, well, who's in there? It's just, a, there's a dog. He's like, okay, all right. Well, you know, how many guys are in there? He's like, nobody. The, the dog and he's like wait a dog and so he's like okay fine you stay here he goes he's like does a good dog have a choke collar so he goes in he's subdues the dog he knows just what to do goes in he subdues the dog he pulls the dog out he says i was never here you deal with this but unfortunately some captain or something shows up right um and, and signs in the case and says you're here you caught the case, you got the case. So now he's stuck with it. it turned... I know how that works from the wire. Exactly. So now he's stuck with this murder of this old woman who ran the candy store. Somebody shot her. And he's now caught the case. It's the last thing he wants. Yeah, he's the whole time he's like, look, I don't want this case. This isn't my case. I got to go deal with this other thing. I was, was a mistake. I shouldn't be here. But I'm not even supposed to be here today. Yeah. 
It's not supposed to be there. It was a total accident. But the brass told him, you caught the case, you got the case. So then, meanwhile, though, he's going to go join his buddies at uh, where they now, I think, are... They found Randolph's mom. They found, well, they found Randolph's house, right? They go in. They think they're going to get Randolph, but it turns out, no, it's just his mom sitting in the corner of this dilapidated room. And she says, what the hell are you doing here? You want to kill my baby. And they, they say, well, look, your, your, your son killed a lot of people. She's like, no, he never hurt nobody. And they're yelling at her. And then Bobby Gold sits down next to her and talks to her. Right? Like a human being. Like a human being. He says, look, this is, this is where we are. This is how it is. We want to bring your son in. He says, I want to save your son. Either we bring him in or the FBI gets him. And that's going to be a lot worse. Right? He says, I want to save your son. And somehow he makes the connection with her that it looks like she believes it. But he gets called away. In the middle of this, they pull him out and say, the family of the murdered woman wants to talk to you. Oh, we missed, by the way, they show up at the candy store when he's there before. And as they're working into the store, remember what, what um, he says? The son it never, never ends for the Jews. It never, it never stops. It never stops. The Jews. And then that doctor, that rich doctor, I mean, who knows? He has a nice apartment. It's He's a got a beautiful house. He's got a beautiful apartment. David Mamet says, what do you do when you have to shoot a rich person's home and you have no money? You take everything out. <laughs> right? There's nothing in this house. And it just looks sort of... I don't know. It looks sort of nice. Spare and modern. And gives you the know, idea of I see, rich. I'm in Manhattan, so it looks really nice and spacious for Manhattan. Well, it makes it look bigger. You take yes. everything out. Yes. And uh, he doesn't want to do the case, but he's told by his supervisor the doctor wants you. You were there. You're his people. And then Gold says, I thought I was your people. Right. So right. we still have this, right? Is he a cop? Is he not a cop? Is he a Jew? Is he a white person? Is he one of them? What is he exactly? Not clear. Well, at this point, he doesn't want to be one of them. Clearly. No, no. And he has to go over there because the wife heard a shot. There's a man on the roof, and he just thinks it's a bunch of paranoid Jews. Right. He shows up, and they say, there's a, there's a man on the roof. I heard a shot. I heard a shot. And, he, and uh, who is it? Rebecca Pigeon is like, no, I'm serious. You know, no, don't disregard me. Right. She's the granddaughter. That's right. And then he has this scene where he goes into one of their offices and he picks up the phone to well, call. Meanwhile, well, hold on. Meanwhile, is it before or after that that all the, the people show up? The, the friends. Oh, it's I think it's before no, it's a, no, well, the Israelis, that, the JDL shows up. I had some we issues with We don't know who the, these people are. They're, yeah, these, we do. We the, know who they are. Well, the They're Kahanists. We don't know that yet. We don't know that yet. First, an old guy shows up, and he's speaking to the Really broken Hebrew. <laughs> in Yiddish. Oh. No, he's speaking Yiddish. Oh, there's also Hebrew. There's there straight is Hebrew, Hebrew yeah. yeah. But first, he's speaking Yiddish, and Bobby Gold says, 
then there's a woman standing there and who's a, another friend. And it's he says, Israeli woman, right? Israeli woman. And he says, do you speak Hebrew? Can you tell me what this is? She says, no, no, it's not Hebrew. It's Yiddish. And she tells him what they're oh, saying. Okay. And then, and he doesn't understand. And this is something I read somewhere else in my research, that there is this thing as he's the orator, right? His, his skill is the communication and the speech. And here he's completely caught up short. He doesn't understand the words that they're saying. And worse, he has to ask a woman to translate for him. This happens again when he meets the yeshiva student in the library. And the yeshiva student says he cans him. He goes, we'll get to it. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll okay, get so, to that. But he goes, you don't speak Hebrew. There's that line. You, you don't, don't speak read Hebrew. Hebrew. You, don't read, you don't read Hebrew. Then, well, and you're a Jew. Well, who are you then? Right. So yes, meanwhile, he's, he's there. So then there's the scene you were talking about. He goes into the, this study, and he's on the phone with his partner, but you only hear his side of it. Yes. And basically, he's completely slagging off this family. He's like, I don't care about their money, these Jews with their problems. I, who the hell are they? I get bothering they somebody. Pay so much taxes, they pay so much taxes. So much anti-Semitism the last 4,000 years. You know, it must be doing something. To, we must be doing something. To bring it about, he's really upset that he missed the bust. And uh, he says, I'm stuck here with my Jews. And and then the granddaughter is there. And yeah, he gives you a line that you love. Right? He turns around and she's been there the whole time. And he's mortified. And he says, oh, you know, I, we're going to catch the killer. We're going to catch the I killer. I promise you. And she's just, he says, I'm sorry I... um." I, I, you know, you have my sympathy. I'm sorry your grandmother died. You have my sympathy. And she says, I don't want, we don't want your sympathy. We would like your respect. And then she does say to him, do you hate yourself that much? Do you belong nowhere? And that's the crux of the whole film, basically. Yep. Right? So... Then he, and he has an altercation with the father as well. They have sort of an argument in. He says, have you no pride enough to do your job? That's right. right. I'm going to do the job. I'm doing the job. This is all very important. With every, in, there's this whole, I mean, in Mamet, all over the place, there's this thing in Mamet of doing the job that runs, I think, across a lot of his work. You certainly see it in Glengarry Get Ross. Always be closing. Right? You see it in a lot of his stuff that it's men doing the job. There's this sort of manly honor that is about doing a job well. And he talks about it in this movie, and other people talk about it, and other cops talk about it. And that's primary to him is, I'm doing the job. And the, 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 the guy, the doctor says, you do your job or else. And he says, no, don't, don't or else with me. I'm doing the job. So then he, there's that whole thing. So then he. Well, the or else is a weird thing the or else for the is, doctor to say to the yeah. homicide detective. Yeah, it, it is. It rubs him definitely the wrong way. It's the first time he gets sort of viscerally response with somebody putting him down. He'll take other people putting him down, but not a Jew. That's kind of true. Yeah. 
However, it gets to him, clearly, because the next thing, he's back down in the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. He goes to the candy store, and he's doing some detective work. On this case, that he doesn't want to be working on. And he goes down into the basement. Oh, when he's there before, the, everybody's telling him who's there on the scene. Oh, yeah, all, you skipped such all a the, pivotal. All the residents are saying, she's got a fortune down in the basement. That's why they killed her. No, oh, they're these two African-American kids yeah. who are in the police station who say no, we... No, they're, no, no, they're on the street in the beginning. They say we know... Oh, they're in the beginning. We know why she was killed. She was killed because she has a lot of money down there. That's why she was killed. We're not going to tell you. I mean... She's got a fortune in the basement. That's right. And so he and goes if he was basement. doing detective work at that time with those kids, he might have avoided this problem. He might have. He might have. Because it turns out the kids killed well, the that woman. That's... Turns uh, out the kids were the murderers. Yes. All along. Yes, yes. And we're about to go on a wild Hitlerian goose chase at the moment. Continue. Yes. So go he with goes down to, He goes down to the basement. Oh, that's, sorry. So when he's still at the family's house, they do hear, he finally does hear something on the roof. He goes up to the roof. He's, he, maybe he sees somebody and then he runs and he sees a piece There's of paper. There's another loud sound that There's makes him go out there. And he sees a piece of paper. And he picks it up, and on it says Grofaz, G-R-O-F-A-Z. Um, and then he, then he, the next thing, he's at the candy store. He's rooting around in the basement, and uh, one of the steps breaks. And he reaches for a box to take the place of the bottom step. And it's a ammunition, I mean, uh, not ammunition, it's an uh, arms box. It's got a big picture of a Tommy gun on it. He opens the box. It's got an invoice for 10 Tommy guns, and it's got a list of Jewish names. It's the dumbest cop on the planet, okay? This is so unbelievably stupid, okay? So the woman was a gun runner in 46 and 47 for Israel before the War of Independence. Okay, that was common, okay? I don't know what relevance that has to a homicide cop in 1991. None. Zero. None. But he's intrigued. He is now... no reason intrigued he feels that something is going on here he doesn't know what it is we don't really know what it is but there's some deep mystery now well that's good he does uh, you can i like that we don't know what it is yes he's playing with the audience a little bit we're thinking oh maybe there is some sort of nazi plot going on here well we don't know we don't we, know we, we don't know yet we, we don't, don't know, know. If it's, we don't know what's going on. but we know she was involved in something and something possibly shady Something that certainly was illegal at the time. Yeah, 50 years ago. 50 sure. years ago, sure. Um, and now she's dead, so... That's why the list is so dumb, but get to that. And then there's a list of names. So Very important names from 1946. Well, yeah, it doesn't... This is what I'm saying, the sort of dreamlike thing. There are things that don't really make sense, but they have a sort of resonance to them. Enough for him, at least now, to be thinking it over in his mind. He goes back to the uh, police station. The guy, Wells, is still there, right? He's in, he's still, I think he's still there. And he says, uh, I want to thank you for standing up to me. And, uh, oh, a cop comes in. This is another, this one, I'm standing up for yourself. A cop comes in and says, you got to file a complaint against this guy. Because he assaulted Check. you. You. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, forget it. 
He says, no, you got to you, you gotta make a complaint. You got to make, make an example here. And Joe Mantegna says, what? This guy killed his wife and three kids. What, is anybody cares about, you know, what he does to me? But I think it gets back to the same thing. If he will not, he doesn't stand up for himself, really. And then he looks at the thing. And he's also got now a, it's not totally crazy. He has also a flyer that was pasted outside the store that's got a rat with a big Jewish nose on it. And it says, poverty creates the ghetto. And the, the what is it? The poverty creates ghetto and the poverty is created by the Jew. Something like that. It was there, not in 1947, but in 1991. He has that, and he has a Grofez, and he's thinking it over. And then he talks to William H. Macy again. Yeah, good. I'm glad you brought that scene up. And they come up with plan phase two. Yeah. Which is, we've got the mother. She's given up the son. We're going to get a fake passport, and she's going to meet him and give him a ticket and a fake passport and say she's going to get out of the, get him out of the country and then the police will close in on him. And so now we got to go get the fake passport and they're filling out the forms. And Joe Mantegna says, there's something going on with this other case. Yep. What does William H. Macy say? He says the best advice I ever got was from a prostitute. No, no, that's the next, no, no, that's not this scene. <laughs> no, that's, that's not, not that scene? That's he not says, this scene. He says, I'm your he family. Says, he says, what other case? Uh, interesting. There is no other case, he says. And he says, he says, what is it? There's a, there's a, there's a girl. What is it? He just doesn't. He doesn't see his interest. We're after a cop killer. What are you talking about? And he's like, well, no, I don't know. It's, it's guns. And then he's and... like, we're going to bust some people and then we're going to walk around and be macho. And swag. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to play cops and robbers. We're going to catch the bad guy. And we're going to swagger around. I love William H. Macy in this film. <laughs> oh, I missed my other favorite line in this film. When they're in the very beginning, when they're on the way before they get to the candy store and they're talking about catching this guy. And he says, yeah, we're going to get um, some of them kudos what they got there. <laughs> you can't, there's some funny lines. <laughs> he does play Midwest well. William H. Macy. Yeah, he's great. Okay. Uh, wait, what about Bob? I'm your family. Yeah, and then at the end of that, he kind of cheers him up, and Bobby Gold says, Tim, you're like my family. He says, Bob, I am your family. Yeah, but then he says the best advice I ever got was That's from later on. So then he, sure? goes, he goes to the ATF. Okay. Because where the, you have to go to the, post, the passport office, and next to the passport office is the firearms, whatever, the ATF When he says, branch, get your holster fixed. And yeah. he's... And then, and, and then he goes back, and this scene was added. The scene in the elevator. They actually added it. You say this movie was short, but they, apparently this they had to do after they did all the shooting. They went back and did this scene in the elevator. Um, this I also found out from the commentary. And David Mamet says, yeah, elevator scenes are great. You put up two flats, you got an elevator. <laughs> so they have a scene in the elevator where, and I think this comes a little too fast on the heels of the scene before, frankly. There's a lot of that here. And uh, Bobby Gold says, yeah, there's something going on there. Those, those guns, it turns out they were stolen. I don't know what's going on. This is really interesting. I think I got to work on it. And William H. Macy says, the line you're talking about, 
I, 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 can, I don't need to read it. <laughs> he says, I'll tell you what the old horse said, and this is the truest thing I know. When you begin to come with the customers, it's time to quit. Did I get it right? You absolutely got it right. And it's, um, it's, it's good. He's right. It's actually pretty poignant if Montaigne would hear it, if Gold would hear it in that moment. Because he's now, this is, he's gone conspiratorial with, with the Jews at this point. He's picked up the flyer. He's gone down this. He's talking about the gun runners. He, so he is a little bit, he's, and, and Macy is like, I think maybe you've gone too far here because you might be. And he says, what else do you say? He says, this is, this is my thing. It's not your thing. It's my thing. And William H. Macy gets upset. And then Bob Colt says, did I, did I, did I make you mad? And William H. Macy says, yes, you made me mad. I'm not going to invite you to my birthday party. And then he calls him a K. Uh, you, you, what is it, little kike? Is that what he says? You can say it. That's right. He says it sort of joking. Of course he says it joking, but he still says it. But it still it. doesn't sound good. No, it never does. And <laughs> then he tell, tells him to go get his holster fixed. Which is important. Right. And then he goes to the, the, the leather store, which is closing up, and there's an old Jewish owner. There we go. And he says, come on, can you fix my holster? He says, no, we're closing. And he shows him his holster, and with the holster is a thing that says, grow faz. And he says, do you know what that means and the old guy says yeah i know what it means it means hitler it was a name they had for hitler so now we have nazis but then there's also this yeshiva student who's there. so then he goes to the jewish library oh that's the library to look up girl faz uh, right he goes to the jewish library so quickly yes and uh the guy is ta ta talking to him about Grofas, which was a name that made, I don't even remember what it was in German, but it means toward the, the end of the, the greatest war. strategist yeah. uh, of all yeah, time. Right. It was a, well, it's like the goat. It's exactly. like the goat, the growth. He's the Grofas. It's like he called Tom Brady, the goat. That's what it's like. Right. And so he tells him about this thing and he's going to go find some other materials for him. And then meanwhile, there's this, uh, uh, Hasid. The gun doesn't disturb me. Right. Tell me about that. This, this the gun part. does it. So he's, this Hasid is there. He's learning. And he's giving Gold some weird looks at him. And he's like, and Montaigne, I just love Montaigne. He's just like, oh, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. I'm a cop. I know you're looking at my gun funny. And he goes, because the gun doesn't concern me. He goes, the gun doesn't disturb me. The badge. The gun is just a tool. That's right. The gun is just a tool. What do I have to be worried about tools? The badge concerns me. He, and this was great. I want to talk about this a little bit. He goes, it is the symbol of that which constrains us. The star on his badge, the, I, I mean, he's the student to the chassid. I mean, I'm not sure who he is here. I know that he has payas and he's studying. So there you go. The, um, the star, he says, the pentagram, this is really good, is a symbol of earth. Five stars. Five stars represent the five senses, the five fingers, the five elements, the material, the earthly nature of this world. Whereas the Magain David, the Star of David, are two interlocking opposite triangles, which have the potentiality for both going up into the heavens and both being down on earth. All right, so it's really nice. That's the difference. The star that he wears is earthly it's non-spiritual it is material it is 
I don't want to say pagan, but it is of this earth. A pentagram certainly is pagan, Oh, there you go. Fine. You can say that. Okay. Then then Esther comes up, and this is really weird. He said, he starts talking about Megillat Esther, and of course, the story in the book of Esther is Esther is a hidden Jew who wins a beauty contest by concealing her Jewishness and becomes the queen of Shushan. Um, and the word Esther comes from, uh, the word to conceal. So there's something concealed that this, uh, guy in the library. Have you heard that before? Yeah. Esther Panim. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, that's a normal translation of it because the name God never appears in the book of Esther and Hester Panim is often used as the, when God's hate, sorry, when God, like when God's face is hidden from us during the Holocaust, during a pogrom, what do we do when God is not present, when God's presence is hidden? And so Esther, one interpretation, one Jewish interpretation is that God is not there, but God is hidden and moves throughout the book and in the actions of Esther herself. All right. So that's part of it. There's also Ishtar is another name used for Esther, which might have its own pagan Reference, but this idea that God does not appear in the book of Esther, it's hidden. God's name does not appear, but yet God is pulling the strings. All right. Then he hands, okay. So I was like, okay, I wonder where he's going with this, Esther. I'm interested. I'm into whatever, you know, chop this uh, chassid wants to put out there. Okay. Well, I'm just trying to figure out what he's going. And then he hands him the piece of paper, which I paused and I read. Okay. So I. Oh, really? Yeah. It's from Esther. It's yeah okay. It's so, so it's, it's, it's straight from Migilot Esther. It's actually not only that, but it's the pivotal chapter in which Esther Mordechai says to Esther, "Didn't you know that this is for you? Like you're the only one who could do this. And if you don't do this, God will get someone else to do it. It's not going to work out for you. But have you ever thought that maybe God put you where you are exactly because that's where you need to be? So that's the section that." That's the piece of paper that he hands him in Hebrew. But then in the notes, he has some handwritten line. I paused it. I looked at it. He has some junk is the only thing. There's just like, it looks oh, like. Oh, the stuff he's written in the margins yeah, and which whatever. Is, it looks like my book in the margins. It's unintelligible. There are like some numbers, some equations or whatever. And he says, see this? And Montaigne pretty much says what I want to say, which is what? What? what, what I mean, it's Esther. What is it? And he says, but Montaigne says, I don't read it. I can't. It's back to your point, okay? He's the great communicator who can communicate with the insiders and the outsiders, but he can't speak the language to which this chassid says, you say you're a Jew and you can't read Hebrew. What are you then? And that's uh, that's the scene. End right. scene, typical mammoth, end scene. Well, on... not quite. Okay. Because then he goes to see where his friend got to looking for the materials for him, and he... Oh, no, because the, the Hasid says, oh, could you put this back oh, on the Oh, yes, he makes him put back me. all of his stuff. So he, he gets the book, he puts it back on the shelf. And while he's there, up at the shelf, he sees through the books his other friend. Uh, the 212. And he says, and there's a woman there, and she says, um, no, you can't give this to him. They wanted it 212. You know what I wrote next to this in my notes? What? Spanish prisoner. This... 212 reminds me of something right out of the Spanish prisoner. What's that? Well, it's a pop-up sham. Oh, 
Well, yeah. Yeah. And it's all, it, then, and now it gets weird. <laughs> but, right? So he, he hears what 212 and then he, he goes the, there. He, well, yeah. The guy puts down the papers and he, and the, the gold looks through it and he sees an address and it's 212 whatever. And then he goes there and there are these two joggers and then one of them pulls a gun on him. And then he's up against this fence, and then Ricky Jay is there. And Ricky like, Jay has no role in this movie, by the way. No, well, he always has these tiny little roles in these in, in Sometimes in these he gets speaking parts. He's not an actor, really, <laughs> but Mary just likes having him around. He likes throwing playing cards really hard. Don't don't speak ill of Ricky Jay. I love Ricky Jay. I'm not speaking ill of Ricky Jay. He just can throw playing cards can't really, throw hard. Playing through, really hard. Through pineapples. Watermelon. Watermelon. Yeah, he can. <laughs> Um, anyway, so it looks like an outpost for the Jewish Defense League. Who knows what it is? They they bring him in eventually, uh, after threatening him, sort of. It's a terrorist group, and they, it's they, a yeah, Jewish terrorist group. A guy with a big rifle, and there's the guy on. There's like a whole radio room there, and then he goes and he talks to the old guy that was visiting with the family before, and they say, "Well, uh, do you want to help us?" And he says, "Yes, uh, I I can help. I'm I." I'm happy to help Good you. Good scene. Great scene. And they great s- scene. And he says anything. He's Montaigne says anything. Anything you want. Anything. I want to help anything. So at this point now, he's on board. He wants to help the Jews. This is his people. Anything you can do. Right. And so they say, well, the list. And he says, oh, okay, yeah, here it is. And he gives them the list. And they say, well, no, we want the original. He says, I can't give you original. It's entered as evidence. I logged it. I logged it. It's evidence. And they say, well, that's what we need. We need the original. He says. He can't compute it. I can't do that. And I'll do anything. They say. And the old guy says, yes, you'll do anything until you hit the first obstacle. And then forget it. And he says, get this guy out of here. He disgusts me. Or words to that effect. And. You pull him out, and he sees across the street the Israeli woman that he was talking to before, and she's actually getting something from the librarian. And he goes up to her, and he says, what are you doing? And she says, well, nothing. And he says, I want to help you in your work. And she says, I'm, uh, I work with the airlines. He says, no, I want to help you with what you're doing right now. Whatever you're doing right now, I want to help you. Why? The motivation here makes no sense to me. He's lost me. Mamet loses me in the motivation right here. That scene doesn't make sense, and then subsequent, the next scene doesn't make sense he either. He wants to feel so like he, he won't belongs steal here. the logged evidence, but he'll right bomb a store. Well, that's the next thing that happens. Is right. She she says, "Okay, this store, they're Nazis." And, and they actually are Nazis. And I'm going in there. It's one of the few reveals in this movie. They're actually, it is a Nazi headquarter. And this scene is sort of right out of House of Games, his first film. There's a very similar scene. House of Games is about this psychiatrist who ends up delving into this sort of underworld of, of con men. It's very similar. She's in one world and she wants to join this other world. She, she falls for Joe Mantegna in that movie, plays a con man, and she's this very successful psychiatrist who is exposed to them and then really wants to get into it, wants to dive into this other world. 
And there's a very similar scene there where they're doing a con and she shows up and they're like, oh no, you got to go. And she's like, no, let me do this with you. Let me, let me do this. It's a very similar scene. And I think it's the same thing. He sees this world that he doesn't understand, that he's never really been exposed to before. And he wants to be part of it. He wants so to he escape the world So he takes her bomb, he goes into he the, the store, bomb, and he, he blows up the Nazi headquarters. Right. And But you do feel like he sees... I don't think anybody has a problem. I, I don't think anybody has a problem with him blowing up the Nazi headquarters. No, no, but he, you get the sense he sees the big swastika, and you and get a whole the bunch sense of pamphlet, that... the pamphlet he found... And he finds all the anti-Semitic pamphlets, and you get the sense that something is activated inside him. And he, he and it's a toy train store, and and he breaks the, the 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 display case with all the toy trains, and then he turns on the bomb and he walks Reminds away. Reminds me of Bobby it, Bacala, by the way. Who? Bobby Bacala met his ending in the train store in The Sopranos. Oh, is that right? Yes, he remember he had a big affinity for trains, and they shoot him in a train oh, that's store. Right. Anyway, that's what I thought. Totally off point. Okay, so he blows up the place. And then he gets back and he tells the woman about, then he unloads on her, right? Back in this diner about how nobody really respects him on the force. He's the Jew. They say, you're going to send a Jew. You may as well send abroad to do the job. And that's why, and you had this thing from before, he always has to be the first one in the door. There's a scene previous, right? Early. That's when right. they're going into Randolph's place and Joe Mantegna is there in front of the door to knock it down. And William H. Macy says to him, why do you always have to be the first one in the door? And this is why he has to be the first one in the door, because he always has to prove that he's a man, basically, right? Because as a Jew, they don't accept him as a man. And he unloads all this on the, on the Israeli woman. Well, he really doesn't act like a man at times. Okay, yeah, yeah. He, un- I don't. I, that Israeli woman was the least compelling character in the entire movie. If I had to choose one character, I, d- I was not. Yeah, I think in the in the um, extras that I watched, there was also I didn't re- watch the whole thing, but there was a gag reel, um, and there was a scene where they're kissing. I think there was a whole romantic subplot oh. there. Oh, I think there was yeah, a they whole. They cut it. They cut it. And I understand why, because he, I, I, I think he didn't want it to be that, like, oh, she's the femme fatale, and that's the thing. I think he didn't want that movie. But I think that was, at some point, well, part it of the might, Well, it might Spanish prisoner it a little more to explain to me why he's blowing this thing up and participating in this. If he has a sexual relationship with the woman, might make more sense why he's going to go take the bomb in there. But clearly, Mamet decided that was not what this story was about. That's it right. was about something else. That's right. So he, she's there, he's talking to her, and then Ricky Jay comes in with a couple of the other guys. It's all set up. And they say, uh, come on, you want to help us? He says, yes, same thing, I want to help you. Well, then give us the list. Can't give you the list. And then they show him photographs of him entering the store. Okay, you listen the to the, okay, let's stop for a second. You listen to the, the commentary. You've seen this movie. Why do they want the list? Who knows? There is no... It's a MacGuffin. There's a MacGuffin. I'm surprised, I'm surprised Mamet would use a MacGuffin. There, why, why do they need the, the list? It doesn't seem like it bears any 
relevance for them. Doesn't matter. I don't think it really matters. It, Unless maybe. they're just so paranoid that they think it does. Maybe they're so paranoid. Okay. And there's well, a look, lot of Jewish I'm gonna paranoia. I'm going to lay one theory on you. Okay. One theory is that this whole thing is a phantom. To me, it's never really clear in this movie. Does he discover these people or does he conjure them up? They are so ridiculous. They are what? Zionist gun-running Nazi hunters? <laughs> it's so absurd. It is absurd. It is what you would make up as your fantasy Jewish cabal. That's right. If you had no idea that, about what Jews really were. That's right. And I think that's a part of this. I think it's, you could look at this as being really his fantasy. So that's a what, Jewish man. That's why the murderer is there to hit him on the head, to cause a hallucination. Oh, maybe. That's, I like that interpretation. Someone's got to uh, pop him on the head and throw him off. That's, that's, that's a midrash and a half. Well, I'm putting out there. I think this film operates on that kind of level. You almost can't take it entirely seriously. Okay, so then well, let's finish the movie. So then, because, wait, let me just say, yeah, to be a cabal of Jewish Zionists is one thing. <laughs> to be a secret group of Nazi hunters is another. But who, to be both who at the used same to time? run guns, but at least though, at least the woman who gets killed, the grandmother who gets killed, actually did run guns. She actually did. They, he found the documents. Yes, that's true. Oh, unless he hallucinated that old scene as well, right? But this whole thing is a... is a fantasy. I don't think you can really take any of it you have, entirely but... serious. It's like a David Lynch movie. You don't go, oh, well, why was there an ear? Whose ear was that, right? <laughs> it's operating, I think, on oh, some sort I of different Oh, I don't know. Mamet can't have his cake and eat it too. Okay. Um, all right. So then uh, he's blackmailed. And how does he end up at the shootout? How does he get to third and race scene? five o'clock. He was given before we're going to be at third and race scene at five o'clock. Is, is that a city? Is that a real address? Third Who knows? Anywhere? I don't think this is supposed to be a real... I think it's a... no. It's filmed in Baltimore, this movie, but I think it. you're supposed to get that it could be anywhere. We're going to be at third at race scene at five o'clock, and you, you got to be there because you're the linchpin, and we got to put this thing together. And then when he is actually kind of a uh, nice little shot, when he, after he gets blackmailed and then he swings, takes a swing at Ricky Jay and Ricky Jay ducks out of the way and, and, and punches him in the gut and he's doubled over. And then he looks at his watch and while he's looking at his watch, you also see the clock above the uh, counter in the diner and they both say five o'clock. And he's like, oh no. That's right. And he rushes to where he's supposed to be. And he's late. And all hell has broken loose. There's gunfire. There's cops hiding behind there. Because cars, he wasn't there because, at five. Because he was not there. And then he rushes in. And Macy's dead. Sully, of course, his partner has been shot. He's dying. I love this death scene as well. Do you remember the last, last no, words? No, He's dying. He's like, I'm, he's like, I need some blood. And he's just talking to him. And then the last thing that the partner says is, hey, Bobby, you remember that girl that time? And then he's gone. And it's, 
I was a, I thought very affecting. Actually, William H. Macy, he's a, he's a great actor. And he's, I think, the best person for David Mamet. I think he's better than Joe Mantegna, frankly. He's just, he does it, and he does it precisely, and you just, but you buy it. He, he's human all the way through. It doesn't feel weird or stilted. stilted, but it's not, he doesn't layer over it either. Anyway, so I want you gone. to explain this last move, this lesson because I don't, okay. I don't understand it. So okay. he, so Macy dies. He goes to track down Ving Rhames. Ving Rhames is about to get away, and before Ving Rhames leaves, and he's been shot in the leg by this point. Montaigne's been well, shot. Well, shows up, and while he's, uh, and what is he doing? Of course, this is not the first. This is now the second time he has descended into the darkness. Right, he descends into the darkness the in the basement and the candy store, and now he's going even deeper into the, the the darkness down 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 he's going into the belly of the beast now and he's got his gun out and then you see him holster his gun and then i think you do see a moment and then he uh, walks down these stairs or something and then you see him reach for his gun and it's not there it has fallen through the holster that was broken in act one and then he sees randolph played by uh, great Ving Rhames. And Ving Rhames says, uh, shoots him in the leg. First, bam. And he says, and then he's going to leave. Yeah, and he says, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm going to kill you. Oh, for, but before he goes, then he says, he says, I'm going to, when he's on his way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you. And you N-word. And there's another little, little thing also from the commentary. Apparently, Joe Mantegna did not want to say that word. And that was like an hour on the set talking about should he say it. They dropped the F word a lot too. Oh, well, that's bad. I mean, there's a lot of profanity in this movie. But he wanted, didn't want to say the N word. Well, I didn't mean F-U-C-K. Oh. I meant the uh, gay slur. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all over the oh, place. Oh, sure. Well, it's 91. Um, and uh, apparently they argued for an hour about whether he should say it. And I think what ended that was Ving Rhames said, come on, man, just say it. And then, then I guess <laughs> that was, that was that. Motherfucker. Yeah. Ving Rhames, he's got a beautiful set of pipes, that man. Oh my goodness, yes. He sounds terrific. I know, I and hear, he looks I hear great. him on commercials. Even in the dark, he's I hear him young. on commercials all the time, he's by the way. He's trim, like, <laughs> right? He's, this young. is, he's never looked this good. It's, uh, it's, it's again. free Marcellus Wallace. Way, yes, Absolutely. And he says, another one of my favorite lines, he shoots him in the leg, and then he says, what are you doing here? He says, I'm going to kill you. Uh, you killed, you shot my partner. And Ving Rhames says, oh, yeah? Well, you forgot your gun, Jim. <laughs> right? You better, if you come at me, you better bring a gun. Yeah, if you come, if you're going to come kill me, you better okay, come armed. good. Now explain to me this whole thing about the mama conversation. So he, then Ving Rhames goes to leave, and he's gone. Ving Rhames is going to leave scot-free, okay? But Montaigne, but Montaigne says, your mama turned you in. And Ving Rhames doesn't believe it. It turns around and shoots him again? By the way, could have just let him go. I was like, oh, my God, if you just shut up. He did, now he's taking another well, he's shot. he's sort of looking for a way out. He, no, he's it, escaped. He's ready to go. It's dark, so it's hard to tell exactly, but it looks like he's on his way through the... 
Yeah, yeah. Window to leave. He's gone. Montaigne's no, not going to stop him. And then he goes after him and his mother and say, you were all set up. He shows him the fake documents. That's right. But before and then, that, then he another gets shot and then he gets lines, shot by another Before cop. he gets shot the second time by Randolph. He says, your mama turned me in. He says, before he tells him, you're one smart. He says, uh, what do you want to do? Do you want to beg for your life? And would you remember what he says? What do you want to do? You beg five? He says, no, it's not worth anything. So now he's, he's, he, this is, he's gone all the way down. He's the, the lowest point. And then he says, really out of spite. It's no, he says, life's not worth anything. It's shit. It's all shit. Your mama gave you up. You did the, he says, no, you, what are you talking about? You don't know my mama. And then he shoots him in the, the torso says, you don't know my mama. You don't know anything. And he says, yeah, the passport, I got it right here. It's fake. It's all shit. So what's not clear to me on this scene is I'm going to die. And your mama gave you up. What's not clear to me in this scene is did the mama set up Joe Montaigne? No, I don't think so. Because no, when Ving Rains is like, you're, you're, we had this all planned out. My mom is going to use you guys, get the passport, get on the flight. Like, what it wasn't clear to me was if Montaigne was being used by Randolph's mama. No, because it's a fake passport. Yeah. That was the story. Yeah. That was a story that the police made up. No, no. That's so a... he actually did get through to his mother then. Oh, yeah. He's not totally played by everyone in the movie then. No, no, he does get through to the mother. And the mother, you see her a uh, uh, couple of scenes later in the Do police you? station. Yeah, when he goes back, um, they're bringing her in. And she says, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do this with you. And she points to Bobby Gold. She's in. She's in. and But she wants to do it with him. And that's why it all goes south when he does not show up. Because she clearly backs out and Randolph gets spooked. And the whole thing goes out. And his only family member gets killed. And and his his yes, his partner is killed, and it's all his fault. And he just wants to die at that point. Just like the guy in the cell who hit him. Who just wanted That's to right. He says he says, My gun, what did you want my gun for? I wanted to kill myself. And now that's that's where he is. But as it turns out, he dropped his gun. He doesn't die. And the last scene, you see him back at the police station. Oh, this is the worst. Right? All his, all his uh, um, colleagues are there. They say, we're sorry about Tim, and they are just daggers. Right? Nobody wants anything to do with him. See you later. Right? His, his um, uh, commanding officer, whatever, the... I don't, I don't know what it would be, but whatever. The the guy that runs that precinct. Oh, they gets, he, he gets killed. He says, yeah, he says, we solved your case for you. It was the kids. They bring out the two kids. I mean. Uh, it's like, he's just like a punch in the gut. Right. And then he says, you're off homicide. You're off. And then he's just out there in the hole and he sees Wells, the murderer, getting taken away by the state police. And that's it. That's it. He's lost everything. Bleak movie, Ben. 
Well, the ending, yeah, it's a little, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. I mean, it's, that's the structure is it's a tragedy. He has a flaw and his flaw is he doesn't know who he is. That is correct. He doesn't know who he is and he doesn't know how to stand up for whatever he is at the same time. Right. And he's chasing after some sense of belonging. <laughs> which he cannot it have. Sounds pretty Jewish, man. Yeah, because he doesn't understand who he is. And it's Oedipus. I mean, it's right. Don't know who you really are. You chase after who you think you should be. You try and escape the things that people are saying about you and not be that. And you run right into it. That's, that's the, it's as classic a tragedy as you get. Right. And it, and, and you run away from the thing and you run right into it. And as it turns out, you, you lose everything. You've every move that you've made in order to escape your fate has been the wrong move. <laughs> oh God. Yes, that's correct. That's right. And trusting your people was the wrong move. Not trusting your people was the wrong move. Trusting your partner was the wrong move. Not trusting your partner was the wrong move. There's no right move for him in this movie. It doesn't seem. That's true because you cannot act correctly in the complete absence of self-knowledge. You cannot do the right thing for yourself when you don't know who you are. Okay, but we don't know who he is either. There's no backstory. There's no romantic interest. There's no home life. There are no friends. Well, he's an archetype. There are no families. There's no anything. He's a self-loathing Jew. That's all we need to know about him. That's clear. I mean, that's the way to set up, right? That's him. He is a self-loathing Jew. He is a, he is a classic self-loathing Jew. He doesn't know about Judaism. He's never bothered to learn anything about his tradition or his people. He has a moment where he gets a glimpse like, oh, here are some Jews who look like they have it going on. What was the scene in, in the scene with a woman, right? He says something like, those guys back there, they, I've never seen Jews like that who just had nothing to prove. He gets a glimpse of that. And rather than understanding, oh, this is the way you behave when you know who you are. He's just like, oh, those are Jews who have nothing to prove. Let me go be with them. That's right. It's just, it's just another, it's just another family to take on for him. Just another thing to pursue. Um, you know, I built this book out of my uh, wall just here. It's called The Book of Stone by Jonathan Papernick. Um, I'm going to give it to you. It, okay. It's basic. It's a. It's about a guy who gets caught up in a a, cons a Jewish conspiracy, a Jewish terrorist plot, uh, which definitely reading it, ha having not seen this movie, but uh, having read that book, it's clear that there's definitely some the the scene in which he's in there and they uh, they're at two twelve and he's at the base of operations. It reminded me a lot of sort of that uh, that book, which is. It is so fantastic. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, you started with that. This sort of dreamlike sense that this movie has, this um, fantasy world that we're in. That's right. There's nothing to really hook you into it. I mean, I, want, I, I thought when I saw it, where does he go wrong? Is he always wrong? 
is he just screwed no matter what? Or is there a moment where he could have done something differently? Or is it inevitable? Well, he's screwed by his supervisors. They take him off the case. They put him on the case. The Jewish doctor wants him, so he's got to be on that case. He's off the case. He can't go on. He can't go to the gym. So they futz with him. And so, like, they're really upset at him at the end. But they're, like, at the same point, they totally just, like, pushed him around and screwed him around and told him not to come. And, you know, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? They treat him like garbage. His problem is he just takes it. it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You ready for one of my crazy theories? Do it. Okay. Crazier than the other one. Oh, yeah. This is my crazy theory. I don't know what it means. But I have a theory that the moments, uh, Jewish life cycle moments, are hinted at throughout this movie. Number one, the first incident with Wells. He tears his holster and draws blood. Does that remind you of anything? Maybe? Talking about circumcision? Yeah. Okay. So that's number one. Keep going. Okay. Then he is called to read from Scripture. Can't do it. Okay. But, but he, is, he is called to do that. It's bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah. Then he is with a woman, and he breaks a whole lot of glass. Okay. Chubbah wedding, yeah. Right. And then I'm not quite sure. I feel like at the end, I mean, at the end, I, I, was, I was thinking, well, is that sort of like, you know, he's there, all the people are there and he, you know, they're all together. It's sort of like a shiva at the end, maybe. But this is one of my, that, that, that was my crazy theory. That he, there, there's this Jewish symbolism. Life cycle. Like, you know, th uh, throughout the, I mean, the breaking of the holster really, I think is pretty good as a stand-in for, and 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 drawing the blood, I think is is pretty good well, as a stand-in for also an emasculation part of that. Yes, he's very much emasculated Absolutely. by having his holster ripped and torn. Yes, and of course there are other torn things, like the doctor. Doctor's sweater is torn. We forgot also about the end. The other thing that happens at the end is they say, "Oh, something's waiting for you," at the very end, and they hand him a paper because he asked for Grofas to be oh, to be researched yeah. right by his by, by one of the police. And they so give like him, a clothing they give store? Him a folder and he opens it up and it says Grofazd pigeon feed. Uh. Because he was on the roof and the whole time it was nothing. That's why that's what kind of gives you the idea. It was just all a it was all a nonsense. It was all nothing. Oh like a usual suspects thing. Kinda. Like a Grofaz is Kinda. the uh, Kobayashi hook. Some yeah, the other thing, the other sort of uh, weird thing um, I thought about was Wells as a sort of satanic figure, in uh, satanic in terms of the Book of Job. That it's this instigating uh, sort of action. Maybe, I mean, he is evil, but he really likes the Jewish character. He has a natural affinity for him. He wants to help him. I love that scene where he comes back after flying the flyer and Wells is talking to him and he's like, he's smoking a cigarette. He's like, I'm sorry. I my wish I could paint. Yes. You'll have to excuse me. 
so my that, thoughts are elsewhere. So Montaigne kills that scene. That's he kills that scene. That's so good. It's so good. He has his moments. Yeah, that was one of them. And the whole time Wells is saying, what does he say? He says, what can I do for you? He says, maybe I can make it up to you. That's what he says. He says, thank you. After he, he decides not to bring charges against him for assaulting a police officer, he says, thank you. Maybe I can make it up to you sometime. And Montaigne's like, what are you talking are you about? How would you do that? Interesting. Does does Mamet give you any? Is there a Rashi on this movie? What or do you mean? We just did it. Probably we just probably made it. The interpretation, like, is is Wells the devil? I don't know. This is the one part of the film I didn't really get. Is is where that character fits in? I like your idea that he is this outsider. That was well, not human. No, why that's what makes him. What is she? That's what makes him the linchpin. He can talk. Two people like human beings, like Randolph's mother, like the murderer. He has that ability to converse with the person who doesn't fit into society, the, the outcast. And but he can't talk his, to his own people, that, yeah. right? That's the thing. He could talk to everybody, but he can't. I'm going to mention this book that I showed you earlier, which is David Mamet's book. He wrote several oh, years oh, later. The Wicked Son. Called the, he wrote a book called The Wicked Son, and it's all about the sin of Jewish self-loathing, basically, and about how they're the people that are sort of almost beneath his contempt are the ones who will be respectful of any tradition that they come in contact with, except their own. That is truth. And I'm I don't, sorry have to you, say. Have you, oh. is that something you've come across? Yeah, a little bit. People I have found, I don't know where the book is, I ha, which is weird. Um, people, I was talking about this today. We had um, Rabbi Tzvi Bar David, who's going to be launching a new program with us on ecstatic music. And so part of this idea is to create new avenues to prayer for people who don't resonate with the traditional prayer are there different approaches and so he's using this sort of sufi ecstatic way in meditation and we'll see how it goes to allow people to come into prayer but what i have found is that people will look anywhere the story i mean the story i mean i've told the story a gazillion times but the idea is that people in my generation in your generation and the generations younger than us they'll go to you know, concerts and to Burning Man, and they'll go to yoga studios. They'll go to yoga studios. They'll go to ashrams. They'll go to Peru and drink ayahuasca. Like they'll do it with a shaman that doesn't speak their language because it has a mystical, spiritual valence, something that they want to seek out. But the idea that they would open a Torah and connect to that for whatever reason, the Torah, Jewish life, Jewish synagogues has, eh, it's why I ended up at this shul, because my, part of my goal as a rabbi was to see if I could bring spirituality to all sorts of settings, settings in which people wouldn't expect it. So I did it in bowling alleys and rock clubs, yada, yada, yada. And I thought, what's the last place that no one would ever look for spirituality? It's a conservative shul. So I thought, okay, bring it to a conservative shul. Can you reimagine what people think of the shul? Because my generation grew up with a shul that was not, 
It was, you know, it was stale. It was cold. It was baby boomerish. And as a result of that, people just said, it's, it's, maybe it's not Jewish. Maybe I, I, maybe my mistake is, maybe it's just because it's the parents. Maybe it's just your father's faith. Are you really going to explore your father's faith? Or are you going to look for something more foreign? Is that a Jewish approach? I don't know. I mean, in this book, the mammoth writes, he seems to be pointing to it as a Jewish phenomenon. Maybe it's not unique to Jews, but I do think there is... We like putting down synagogues as Jews. We do. Well, and I do think there is a kind of Jew who feels that it is sophisticated in a way to put down all that stuff and sort of hold it in some contempt, right? Like, yes, I am a Jew, but I'm not that kind of Jew. It's embarrassing. It's, it's like my grandparents in Yiddish. It's embarrassing. There's something deeply embarrassing about being a Jew that people don't want to have anything to do with, that they want to want to rave from. They've had bad associations here. Maybe they had bad relationships with family members. And therefore, as Mamet says, they'll go to far afield places to capture something that we as a people have been trying to understand and develop for 3,000 years. We've been working at sort of the spiritual understanding. How do we get to God? How do we create communities with God? We have a wisdom here, but it's the last place a lot of Jews will look. I don't know what it is. I don't because we're sophisticated, enlightened smart, educated people. And there is something, given that this is a several thousand year old tradition, that is backward and weird and unenlightened. That is part of it. I just spoke to a conversion student today and I said to her, I, we're talking about circumcision, back to circumcision again, right? Um, I said I never advocate for circumcision for any reason other than God said so. I said, I will not do it. I won't give you a scientific argument. I won't give you a sociological argument. I won't give you a familiar argument because none of those arguments are what it is. This is God said so. This is a mitzvah. It is a commandment that we can't understand. And the process of fulfilling that commandment, because God said so, is a beautiful, powerful thing, kind of like the Akedah of Yitzchak and Abraham. But that requires relinquishing, I don't know, a little bit of pride, a little bit of control. A little bit of rationality. Little More than a little bit of rationality. That's right. And I grew up on Long Island, so I know exactly what you're talking about. This idea was like, you know, two out of three, work, uh, support the state of Israel, study really hard, get good grades, the God stuff, that's for the people who aren't as smart as us, okay? That's for people who need it and don't, eh, eh, eh. And it's a tough turn that, I, I mean, I, I think at some point I made to say, Okay, well, actually, maybe this isn't a bug. It's a feature. It's a tough turn to make, but I think it's the turn you kind of have to make if you are going to have, accept it. Have faith is the word. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm still not sure that I'm all the way there. No, but I like your, the, the faith, the, is, is the, the, stuff is that the feature, not the bug. The stuff that doesn't make sense. That's why we don't cut it out. Yeah. The stuff that makes no earthly sense is, I think, not a bug. It's a feature. And I think we need I it. I think we're still coming to understand what that text means. And I think the more, I think that's why we read it every year, because some of those bugs, which don't make any sense. Oh, it's like I said, when COVID started, I never understood what the heck Ecclesiastes was. A time to refrain from embracing. And it, I said, what is that? When, when would ever be a time to refrain from embracing? But now I know. Now you know. Because I've lived long enough, because now I know what he meant. And getting back to homicide, I think also, if all you got is doing the job, it's not enough. I think that's the other thing that maybe you get from oh, this toxic film. masculine. It's a critique against toxic masculine. Well, there's certainly there's a whole lot of that. But even if you take that out of it, the idea that you can just show up every day and do the job, that that's your whole identity. And you don't need anything else. It's just not going to be enough for a full life. You might have a wonderful job at a wonderful tech company. You might have a great place to live. You might identify yourself through your social media profiles and whatnot. But that is not ultimately going to be sufficient. Right? Right. Jewish geography. Do it. I don't have any connection. Well, to you do a little bit. I really like uh, saving, uh, searching for Bobby Fischer. I really like that Joe movie. Joe is great in that, isn't uh, he? He's fantastic. I wish he did more. I wish he... I would watch David. Joan Man Allen Joe, is in would... that movie. Lawrence Fishburne. It's yeah. a good movie. Oh, it's an amazing movie. Yeah, you should watch it again. Yes. And, and Joe Mantegna is really good. In okay. a role that's a little bit against Jewish type for him. Jewish geography. Okay, there's one little bit of Jewish geography. Uh, David Mamet wrote a book with Rabbi Lawrence Kushner. Oh, really? Yeah. About, uh, it's called The Five Something. It's about, Shush. it's about the uh, Torah. Uh, you can look it up. I haven't found this book, but I'm assuming you can get it somehow. I'll find it. And Lawrence Kushner is Rabbi Emeritus at the Temple Emmanuel, Congregation Emmanuel uh, down the street here in San Francisco. So we got a little the father bit of, of a, Rabbi Noah Kushner. That's right. Also yeah. the father of uh, Noah Kushner, who uh, is a rabbi at the kitchen, also here in San Francisco. So we got a little bit of a connection there, at least by I proximity. I had no idea that Lawrence Kushner and, and Mamet wrote a book. Yeah. Also, I think the closest I have come to David Mamet, I did see Ricky Jay <laughs> on stage <laughs> in uh, fit, uh, Ricky Car Jay tricks. and his 52 assistants. Card tricks? Yeah, it was all cards. Uh, you, it, you can actually, I think they filmed it. You can find it. It's amazing. I mean, I saw it in a live in a small theater in New York City. It was off-Broadway. I know off-Broadway house somewhere, I guess. And that was directed by David Mamet, the show. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, it was all Ricky yeah, Jay yeah, yeah. doing <laughs> tricks, right? I don't know. But it was all very well constructed and, and well done. It was an amazing show. And Ricky Jay is just, he was, he, he, he died just, I think. Oh, he did? I didn't yeah, know yeah, that. just this year, I think, actually. I mean... I believe he passed within the last year, so I did he's, not know he's that. no longer with us. And he's also, I heard there was just an auction of his stuff because he was not oh, only he, he a, was a magician, a crazy but he was a scholar historian, yeah. and historian of magic. And he had all this books and 
probably appliances and all kinds of so, stuff. So, I mean, I, I don't know if we want to go down this slippery slope, but I've always found people who are historians of magic to be weird and creepy folks. I mean, there's something like the Penn and Teller folk, anybody who's so nerdy. <laughs> but it's it, there's something else, too, in it. There's another aspect there that... Well, you want to talk about an alternate world that you want to be a part of. That's it. It's right. It's you don't come like a world of deep mystery, secrets, hidden secrets, hidden secrets of an exclusive into. group to know the secrets. The whole thing. Yeah. But I respect it. I have to say, I think magic is, in some ways, a sort of distillation of theatricality. That the whole thing is controlling the audience's attention. Absolutely, tricking, the whole tricking thing. their brains. Absolutely. Right. You pay attention to this over here. Right, so you're not paying attention to this over this thing I'm doing over. That's the whole thing, is con is controlling and mastering and commanding an audience's attention. Is this in the canon? Is this? I would say yes. Ooh, yes. A thumbs I've up got for a Ben Chin. Big thumbs up. I think this belongs in the canon. Why? Because it investigates a part of Jewishness in a deeper and more sustained manner than I think you find anywhere else. And it's David Mamet. He's one of the great American Jewish uh, writers, I just wish dramatists. It was a, I, I, I agree with you. I just wish it was a little bit better as a film. It's just a I, I little bit, still a little hungry. I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with you. I've, this is not the first time you've seen it. I've seen it. Watching it, preparing for this is probably the first time I really liked it. <laughs> I didn't really, I didn't really get into it when I've seen it before. Yeah. I don't even know that I got through the whole thing when I've tried to watch it before. So how Jewish is this movie? Yeah, it's a nine. It's a nine. I think you could probably go higher than a nine, but yeah, it's pretty good. Especially as an American Jewish movie. I mean, pretty, pretty hard to imagine how you could... Up the Jewish volume. Well, I think if you had more Jewish actors, that might make it more Jewish. If you actually had more Jews actually involved. Are there any Jews in the cast? Any. Ricky J. Ricky J was Jewish. Ricky J was Jewish, sure. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. He doesn't have a line. He has a few little no, lines. No, he has no lines in the movie. He does not have no lines. He has two lines in the whole movie. He has not many <laughs> lines it's true he has not so it's lines. a nine on the jewish meter with no jewish actors which is pretty impressive <laughs> it's pretty impressive <laughs> this was fun this was fun i like this movie i think maybe like i said if you watch it again i'll give it an hour. you might like them but do watch things change okay i would say to you to anybody listening to this one of my favorite movies. Top 20 in Ben Chin's it's, list. I think might be on my top 20. So meanwhile, this has been The Jewish Frame. I'm Ben Chin. I'm Rabbi Ain. And we'll talk to you next time. Take care.